Amen. Thank you, Chris. At this time, I'll dismiss the children that have pre-registered for Children's Church. You can meet Pastor Nathan and Amy there at the back to make your way for a time in God's Word. So as the children are making their way to the back door, I want to invite the rest of us to please open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. As we prepare and start thinking about the fast on 15, I wanted to take the first two Sundays of the new year to think about prayer, and to think about seeking God with the hope that we would indeed employ all of our facilities, all of our faculties toward knowing Him. So Jeremiah 29 verses 10 through 14 will be our starting point. As you're turning there, I want to give a, a praise that Emma is still continuing to do well. and uh, we, she, Her level of alertness continues to increase, and we're very thankful for that. I still see signs of her spunk. Um, one of the things that we've done since this first happened with Emma is that we would play a lot of classical music as she was asleep. One of the neurologists at UT encouraged us to do that. He said, you know, play Mozart, Brahms, Beethoven, Bach. Uh, because there really is some truth that that music stimulates brain growth and brain development. So that's what we would do. The other morning, Emma was awake, and I was in the room with her, and it was about, oh, 7.45, 8 o'clock. And I said, Emma, do you want to listen to some music? She nodded, a big nod, yes. And I said, well, do you want to listen to some classical music? And very clearly, she went, no. And so I ended up putting on some other music, some Christian music that morning. But I love it even when she tells us no. That's a very encouraging sign. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare. And not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Bow with me in prayer. Father, as we approach the portion of worship where your word is opened and studied, we ask for your guidance. We are acutely aware of our dependency upon you. So we pray for your Holy Spirit to illuminate this text and to show us how to live it. Father, we thank you for your great love. We've sung about that this morning. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. That when glory comes and we are in your presence, we will spend forever worshiping you and not experience the boredom and the tedium that often accompanies this life. Thank you for that hope, O oh God. Now work within our hearts that we would indeed seek you and live accordingly to the hope you have promised. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, the first of a new year always has a sense of freshness about it. 
many ways it feels like a, we are artists sitting in front of a canvas and the canvas is blank just waiting to see what colors we will use in painting the new year ahead. Now usually when we think about painting the new year ahead and the blank canvas, we start thinking about changes we want to make, don't we? And usually those become resolutions that we make that we're going to eat healthy at least for a week. We're going to exercise and get in better shape or maybe we are going to, to be better financial managers. And those are all noble pursuits. However, I want to ask you not to consider what you will change, but what you will seek in the coming year. What is it that will call you to employ your time, your energy, your efforts to obtain? What is it that you will go after with a passion in the 365 days that are in front of us? And I want to ask you that as you consider what you will seek, be sure that what you seek can actually be obtained. It is foolishness to pursue and to seek something that cannot be obtained. Furthermore, once you have expended your energy and find that you cannot obtain that which you have sought, you find yourself frustrated. For over 200 years, treasure hunters have gathered at Oak Island, a small island located off the coast of Nova Scotia. They go there seeking treasure. Because for over 200 years, legend has circulated that Captain Kidd, the famed or the infamous pirate, buried his gold treasure there on Oak Island. Other legends have arisen also. Legends that there are Shakespearean manuscripts buried on the island. One legend even purports that the Knights Templar buried the Ark of the Covenant on Oak Island. I think the socks that we lose in the dryer are buried on Oak Island. Millions of dollars have been spent, immeasurable minutes have been lost, energy that can never be regained has been expended for over 200 years. You know what has been found? Absolutely nothing. Be sure that what you're seeking can be found. The glorious good news is that when you set your heart and your mind to seek God, He has promised you that He will be found. Seeking God is not a foolish nor is it a futile endeavor. It is one based upon His Word where He has said that if we seek Him with all of our heart, we will be, He will be found by us. This promise is found in Jeremiah chapter 29 verses 10 through 14. Now, before I dive into this text and before we begin our study, I think it's very important that we step back for a moment to recognize the context of this promise. We don't want to be guilty of ripping this passage out of its context and thereby misapplying it. After all, this promise was given to the people of Israel at a very different time and a very different place. They were being punished for their sins, for they had rebelled against God. And God had told them in the book of Deuteronomy, When you rebel against me, I will deliver you into your enemies and you will go into exile. What that means is that when Babylon had defeated Judah, they took the brightest and the best and exported them to the city of Babylon. 
Their strategy in doing this was the best way to get rid of your enemies is to make them like you. So they wanted to turn these Judeans into Babylonians by immersing them in Babylonian culture. So this promise is given to them. And this begs the question, can we take promises that were made to Israelites over 2,000 years ago, well over 2,000 years ago, can we rightfully apply them to our lives? What do we do with these promises? Well, I want to show you from the Scripture that it is perfectly appropriate to apply these promises to us. That we can seek meaning and claim these promises. And I want to lay out the rationale as to why. First is this. So this is, I'm putting on my teaching hat for a few moments before we get to the preaching. First is this, and you'll see it up on the screen. We can apply these promises and claim them because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. So we start with Christ. Paul begins here in 2 Corinthians 1.20 when he says, For all, every one of the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. So he says that all the promises find their yes. And that's another way of saying that all the promises of God find their fulfillment in Jesus. That shouldn't surprise us because Jesus himself said he didn't come to do away with the scripture. To the contrary, Jesus said, I came to fulfill the scripture. So all the promises of Jesus find their fulfillment, their yes, in Jesus. That shouldn't surprise us again because Jesus is indeed the centerpiece, centerpiece of God's salvific plan. He is the cornerstone of the kingdom. Jesus is the point of God's plan. And the wonderful news is this, the promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus are fulfilled to a greater degree than we could ever imagine. Let me give you an example. Some of the promises that are given to Israel revolve around land. God is very specific that he will give them a certain amount of land stretching from the Mediterranean Sea over past the Jordan River into Transjordania. So how is that fulfilled in Christ? I would submit to you that it is fulfilled in an even greater way in Christ because guess what? This promise is a yes that the followers of Jesus don't just get a small sliver of land in the Middle East. What awaits us is nothing less than a new heaven and a new earth that we will inhabit and dwell in to the glory of God. Now isn't that far greater than any promise of the Old Testament? It finds a yes in Christ. Furthermore, when we sit down with the Scripture, we find that Jesus himself is the Israel of God. This is the second point you'll see up on the screen. Jesus is the Israel of God. In the people of Israel, God was preparing us to understand who Jesus is and what it means to be the people of God. Now, a starting point for understanding this is found in Exodus 4:22. Sorry it's so small, I'll work on getting larger font. But here, it's very interesting that Moses is told by God to say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel's my firstborn son. Now the reason that's interesting is what is probably the primary title by which Jesus is referred to in the New Testament. Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, John 1 teaches us that He is the only begotten or the unique Son of God. 
So it's not that God has multiple sons. It is, in other words, saying that Israel, as the son of God, is preparing us to understand what it means to walk in relationship with God and to walk in perfect obedience with God. Jesus is the fulfillment of what Israel was meant to be. You see this also in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 42, Jesus is referred to as the suffering servant, the servant of the Lord. In Isaiah 41 and Isaiah 44, that title is applied to Israel. And what you see is this pattern is that Jesus fulfills what Israel was meant to be. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Where Israel fell short, Jesus never falls short. He is the perfect Israel, the perfect representation, the perfect being of God's people. Now, If you'll permit me a moment to do a quick flyover, an overview, Matthew's chapter 3 through 5 emphasizes this by the way it structures its very gospel. Think about the Exodus for a moment. After God freed Israel from Egypt, where did they go? They came to the Red Sea, they passed through the waters, and then they went into the wilderness. Now in the wilderness, when they were tempted, how did Israel do? Not good. They failed every step along the way. Now in Matthew's gospel at the end of chapter 3, Jesus appears and he is baptized by John the Baptist. Immediately after Jesus comes up from the water, where is he led? Into the wilderness and he is led there by the Spirit. And in the wilderness, Jesus is tempted by the devil. How did Jesus do when he was tempted in the wilderness? A plus. Never failed. Israel fails in the wilderness. Jesus succeeds. Israel sins in the wilderness. Jesus never sins. Now furthermore, just to add a cherry on top, you'll notice that in the Old Testament, Moses receives the law when he is on the mountain. Right after the wilderness temptation, what happens in Matthew's gospel? It emphasizes that Jesus goes up on the mountain and he does not receive the word of the Lord. He delivers the word of God for he himself is the word of God. So you have this clear picture that Jesus fulfills all that Israel was supposed to be and is the culmination of what God was doing among his people even in the Old Testament. That is why Paul writes in the book of Romans chapter 11 that we as the church are grafted into the promises of God. That word grafted is a, an image from the horticultural world where a limb is broken off and another limb is placed on and grafted in. As a church, we are grafted into the promises of God because we are in Christ who is the Israel of God. Now follow my logic here. Jesus is the Israel of God. So if we are in Him by faith, we are the Israel of God. Because of our connection with Jesus by faith. See, the people of God have always, even in the Old Testament, been defined by faith. It's not as much an issue of biology or lineage as it is faith. Paul makes this abundantly clear in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, when he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Faith. Not lineage is what makes the difference. We are born of God not because of human will or human heritage, but by God's power that we have faith in Him. That's why at the end of Galatians, Paul says, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So these promises made to Israel are fulfilled in Christ. 
And because we are in Christ by faith, we can claim those promises because of Jesus. Furthermore, we can see the promises in the Old Testament reaffirmed in the New Testament. I mentioned a moment ago the illustration of heaven and earth representing the fulfillment of promises of land. When you look in verse 11 and you read where the Lord says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That is echoed in Romans 8, 28 when he said, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. That promise is echoed in the New Testament. Furthermore, we share a parallel experience with the Israelites of the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul said that what happened to Israel was written for our example, that we might learn from them. We learn from them because what we face in this world is very similar to those. We also are exiles just as the people who read Jeremiah's letter are exiles. Peter emphasizes this in his letter. Three times he says that we are exiles. Verse 1 of chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those who are elect exiles, that's the church. And if you, according to 1 Peter 1.17, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Beloved, he writes in 1 Peter 2.11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We are sojourners and exiles. Why? We're not home. We're behind enemy lines just like Old Testament Israel was in Jeremiah and the world around us is trying to squeeze us into its mold. So this promise takes on an extra measure of poignancy as we read it and say, Lord, help us. We too are called to seek God. Just as Israel was, we too in Christ are called to seek Him. And we too, just like old Israel, are dependent upon God to seek Him. Just as we love Him because He first loved us, we seek Him because He first sought us. You see, our hope of finding God when we seek Him is not because of our efforts, not because we merit it in some way. It is because of the grace of God that is emphasized in verses 10 through 11. In fact, it's emphasized throughout this entire passage. I encourage you sometime later this afternoon, sit down and just underline all the times that God says He will do something. And then take another colored pencil and mark the times that He tells us to do something. And you will find that God's actions far outweigh our actions. Because that is God's grace. He is calling us to seek Him. Now notice in verse 10, He says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. That 70 years is referring to the time that Israel will be in exile. When they read this, they are in exile. In fact, a few verses before, God said to them, Plant gardens, have children, seek the welfare of the city. Why? You're going to be there for a while. And so he says, when the time comes, I will visit you. So when God's discipline of Israel was done, he says, I'm going to visit you. Now visit means to pay attention, to observe with care. It's not that God was unaware of his people. God is omniscient. 
He's omnipresent. He knew. But when it speaks of God visiting, it means that God will show up to act in a very specific way. In fact, according to this scripture, there are only two ways that God will act when he visits his people. It's either going to be judgment or it's going to be redemption. Earlier in the Old Testament, God speaks of visiting Israel and he says, I will visit their sin upon them. When I was in my early teens, I have very vivid memories of Saturdays that dad would leave. He would leave the house early in the day and go and do things that he needed to do. But usually either on Friday evening or on Saturday morning before he left, he would leave me a list of things that needed to be done. Yard needs to be mowed, the bushes need to be trimmed, this needs to be painted, the oil in the car needs to be changed. Now there would come a time that afternoon when dad would visit the house, if you get what I mean. And when dad came, it was either going to be judgment or reward based on what I had done. If I had done everything that needed to be done, okay, things are good. But if not, well, we'll just leave it at that. So it is with our Lord. Now in this case, in this specific context, his visit is for redemption. Because notice what he says in verse 10. I'm going to visit you after 70 years. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now Jeremiah is writing from Jerusalem. So he's saying, when I bring you back to this place, he's saying, I'm going to bring you back from the exile and restore you to where you need to be. I'm going to bring you home. And the reason he's going to do that, he says in verse 11, is I have a plan for you. God's plan for his people is for their welfare and not evil. The word for welfare means, it's literally the word shalom, peace, well-being. Serenity. And that's contrast with evil. Evil is a word that you can look up in, in the lexicon, but it still can be difficult to define. Theologians and philosophers discuss it all the time. The word literally means disorder, chaos, calamity. Augustine, the great theologian of the, the early church, said that evil is that which harms. God's ultimate plan for his people is well-being. That doesn't mean that getting to that point, we will not go through times of disorder. We will experience chaos here. That's the world in which we live. You read through the scripture, particularly Hebrews 11, and you will see where the people of God experienced persecution, disorder, and chaos. Read through church history. God's people have experienced those things. But we need to be mindful that that experience of disorder, chaos, and calamity is not the end of the story. Right now, you may be going through times of chaos and calamity, and you're wondering, Lord, where is the good? The story's not over. Don't despair. You may be in that period where God is growing you and testing you, but keep in mind that His ultimate plan for you is a hope-filled future. That's how He describes His plan, to give us a, a hope-filled future, a future that is filled with hope. Hope is confident expectation. It's connected with shalom. 
It's confidence that the end of God's plan for me will be my well-being. The end of His plan for His people is our well-being. Therefore, we don't have to despair in the midst of suffering, calamity, and disorder. Think of it in terms like this. Tim Keller draws a picture of this with this illustration. There were two ladies that are given the same job. They're employed at an assembly line in a factory. For eight hours a day, their job is the same thing every day. Take, take part A, insert it into slot B, and move it on down the line. For eight hours a day, they do the same thing in the same conditions. There's only one difference between the two ladies. One of them is promised that at the end of one year, she will earn $30,000. The other lady is promised $30 million at the end of the year. Now, which of those ladies do you think can endure the labor better? It may be difficult for both, but the one that's making 30000 may say, this isn't worth it. I'm done. I'm out of here. But the one promised $30 million can say, I can do this. $30 million? Oh, yeah. I can give you $30 million reasons I can endure this. Our promise is far greater than what we can imagine. Don't get caught up in trying to judge and discern what God is doing now at this moment. Because God is working a future that is greater than we can even imagine. God does not abandon His people, ever. And even though the clouds may darken the sky, it does not mean that the sun is gone. You may experience these moments of trial, but that does not mean God has forsaken you. He is not done with you. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the story of Ruth. And to be actually a little bit more to the point, Ruth is not about Ruth. It's about Naomi, her mother-in-law. It's a story that has grabbed my attention time and time again. If you're not familiar with it, Naomi's married to her husband. That makes sense. But they encounter one of those difficult times. There's a famine in the land. So they decide to move to Moab where they can get food. And while they are there, their two boys marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Oprah. But then tragedy comes. Naomi's husband dies, and then her two boys die. And now it's just her with her daughters-in-law, and they are destitute. In fact, Things are so bad that Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. You see, Naomi means pleasant. She says, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. This is a woman that life had hit hard. Eventually, her and Ruth make their way back to Bethlehem. And there, through God's providential care to bring about His plan of salvation... They meet Boaz, who marries Ruth and provides for the family. But you know what grabs me about the story is the end of it. You see, Ruth and Boaz have a baby, a baby boy named Obed. But the book doesn't end with Ruth holding her son. You know where it ends with? It ends with Mamma Naomi holding the boy. And the women are praising her. And now Naomi says, call me Naomi. For God has been pleasant to me. Because this boy, Obed, 
will have a son named Jesse. We'll have a son named David. You see, if Naomi had stopped in Moab and said, I'm Mara, I'm bitter, I'm done. And had stopped trusting. She would have never known the pleasantness and the joy of holding God's promised salvation. Trust Him. Seek Him. You see, that's the promise that accompanies this. You see, he says, I know the plans that I have for you. Then in verse 12, then you will call upon me. Now, I have to confess to you, I struggled this week with that word then. I thought, why, why does he add that time, that adverbial phrase of time? Then, in other words, after, after I've restored you, after I've fulfilled my promise, then you will call upon me. I'm by no means a Hebrew scholar. Most of my Hebrew work, I'm dependent upon computer software but I was looking at the word, and you could translate that equally, and you will call upon me. But most translations that I looked at said, then. But I believe the connection is this. Verses 10 and 11 speak of redemption and reconciliation. Redemption and reconciliation bring about prayer where God says, I will hear you. He is saying, then, once we have been reconciled, then I will hear you. Once again, it is not that God is deaf and does not hear the voices of His people. Hear means respond. And He will respond because the sin that had separated them has been dealt with and is out of the way. Jeremiah 11.4, God told Israel, I will not hear your prayers because of your idolatry. You see, they were going through Him, they were praying, but at the same time, they were worshiping idols. Isn't that arrogant? And before we cast stones upon Israel, we need to recognize that how often do we do the same thing? We give no thought to our lives and then we call out, Lord, bless us, bless us, bless us, while we are worshiping idols and holding on to things that are displeasing to God. In many ways, we're like a, a college student who decides that for whatever reason he is going to torch his professor online and just writes a scathing review of the class and the professor and then has the audacity a day later to go to that professor and ask for a reference. We'd say, that's crazy. But how often do we treat God like that? You see, God, though, is not vindictive. One of the things that adversity will do, one of the things that exile will do, is it will reveal the idols in our heart. It will show that those idols cannot save. And it will reveal that apart from God, we can do nothing. And once we realize that, we're at a place of reconciliation with God where we can call out to Him. Those verbs, call upon, come and pray, all echo the same thing. And then God says, you will seek me and find me. But there's a caveat in verse 13. When you seek me with all your heart. I pray that we will have the passion to pursue God this year. With the same way we pursue a whole host of other hobbies and other pursuits. Passion. I pray that we could have a, a passion like a young man by the name of Ali, Ali Demakara. He's known as Crazy Ali. Because he is such a devoted fan of the football, the soccer team in his hometown. He is such an excited fan. In the first game of the season a few years ago, he got into a fight with some fans for the other team. And he was banned from the stadium. It was that bad. But oh, Crazy Ali would not be deterred because the very next opportunity, he rented a crane that lifted him up in a bucket so he could look over the stands and watch his team play. 
Do we pursue God with the same sense of I need you and want to be with you? Our hearts are easily divided. It's very easy for us to pray and to repeat the same words. To open up the scripture without really considering what God is saying. C.S. Lewis, I believe, was spot on when he wrote in his work, The Weight of Glory, that we are all half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Yet like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. What's keeping us from seeking God? God has promised that when we seek Him with our heart, He will find us, He will restore us, He will gather us. And those things come to fruition in Christ. But the call still comes to us to seek Him with all of our heart. What's causing your heart to be divided? I want us to take a few moments for a spiritual inventory before Chris comes and leads us in song. So would you bow your heads with me right now? I don't do this to create a sense of guilt because the Lord knows all of us, myself included, fall short. But I ask us to do this so that we can say, Lord, we want to seek you in the year ahead. Help us. So this morning I ask you, is your heart divided by worry? Anxiety? Lay that before the Lord. Is your heart divided by anger? You are hurt and you are mad. And your heart's divided. Lay it before the Lord. Maybe your heart's divided this morning because you're not sure how you're going to make ends meet in 2021. Lay that before the Lord. Our God is not vindictive. He is gracious. And if you have been rebelling against Him in this morning, you say, forgive me, Lord. His ways are not our ways. As Nathan read earlier, He gives grace upon grace. His compassion is available. Father, thank you for being merciful to us. You have promised us great things that are fulfilled in Christ. And so it is in the name of Jesus that we come before you asking you to make our hearts holy, united, and seeking you. Show us what we need to do, O Lord. If it's carving out more time for prayer, help us to do that. If it's engaging in, in, in faith-building conversations with others, help us to do that. If it's laying behind sin that so easily entangles, God grant us strength and help to do that. Thank you, Father, for being so good to us and promising us that when we seek you with all of our heart, we will find you. In your name we pray.